Thank you so much for that prayer, and thank you for all the kind greetings that you've given to me so far. As Mark said, my name is Kyle Hackman, and we did just meet on the, off the highway a couple hours ago. No. Uh, your pastor, Mark, and I met uh, a couple months ago at a pastor's gathering, but it's a very bookish group of pastors, and uh, he was the only person laughing more than me, so I decided we had to become friends, or else we would go crazy. And uh, he's been a very, very great friend to me, and I'll just say that in the short time I've known him, he's given me so much wisdom as it relates to the church that I'm trying to plant in Toronto, uh, wisdom about leadership, about what it means to uh, lead a church well and help people grow in godliness. And I can't tell you uh, how thankful I've been, even this week, to uh, learn a bit more from him. And so um, you have a great pastor, don't take him for granted. One of the joys of being a guest preacher is I get to say this prefatory remark to you that um, if you're here visiting, and I already met someone who it's your first Sunday, if, if the sermon's terrible, I got great news. Uh, I'm just a guest, and you have to come back again. <laughs> And it might get a lot better. And if it's really good, you don't know if it'll get even better next week. So uh, this is one of the best parts about being a guest preacher. And I wanted to look at a very familiar passage with you uh, uh, from John 3. I'm guessing, even if you have no exposure to Christianity, you've heard some of the language of this passage. And I think it'd be helpful to to devote your attention to John 3. And we're going to talk a little bit about this passage for the next couple of minutes. But at this time, would you uh, turn your attention to John 3? It's listed in your bulletin, and also it's available, I think, in the Pew Bibles or any Bible you might have before you. I'm going to read from the bulletin. You can follow along as I read. Give your full attention here now to God's Word. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God and that no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Verse 9. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? And Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out by God. This is God's word. Would you pray with me? 
Father, it's a strange thing that you have saw fit to pass on your wills and your way, to encourage us, to, to pour out new life into us through some words being read and some reflections on those words through sermons. But you've given promises that where your word is read and where, where believers are gathered, you will show up among us. And so we come now asking in your kindness that you would show up here in this congregation. And in this congregation, you would build us up towards the ways of eternal life. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, for the past year, I have uh, been at the task of planting a church in the East End, which I've seen all around here, but not the East End uh, where you are, but the East End of Toronto. And just briefly, a bit about the place. In the past 10 years, over 100,000 homes have sold in this area. Uh, it's an area of radical change. And what has happened in the East End of the city of Toronto is that all the young families want to buy a property and try to raise kids in this area. And I have been more than excited with the task of planting a church in this area, mostly because I have four kids and I fit in in, in many ways. And when my kids uh, scream during the worship service, it doesn't bother most of the people that assemble together at the church plant. Um, but as I uh, set, set to the church plant and had all these efforts and all these ideas, it's been great to see people attracted and, and coming to explore Christianity. But the question that I continue to be puzzled by for this past year, a question that you would say, my goodness, you're a church planner, you're a pastor, you should have thought this through is what would it look like for someone in this area to have an encounter with the living God? It might sound strange, but my imagination had grown dull. Maybe you can relate. What does it look like for people who are stable, people who are set in their ways? I don't know you, all of your stories. Maybe what does it look like for people who feel that they're too old? Maybe they have too much money. Maybe they have too little money. What would it, what would it look like for the people in your life to have a real encounter with the risen Christ? What would it look like for your neighbors to have a real and saving encounter with the resurrected Jesus? And this question has been on my mind. It's something that I feel should be straightforward. But as I focused more and more on this particular area of the city, I began to realize that my imagination isn't where it should be. This is a well-known passage in John 3. I'm sure you recognize some of the language, if, if from nothing else, just from watching uh, political conversations. When you hear the words born again, I'm sure it rings all things to mind. Let me set the stage for you a little bit and tell you how I want to approach this passage. I want to approach this passage looking at an area that you might not think about, and that is I want to ask ourselves, what is Jesus doing to Nicodemus in this passage? What, what's happening to Nicodemus? How is his character being changed through this passage? What is Jesus doing? Here's some background for you. Jesus has just cleansed the temple as Mark orders this, or as John orders the story of Jesus. And he uh, goes into the, the Jewish temple. He's angry because he's seeing uh, this temple being used as a way in which uh, individuals could pad their pockets and profit off of the, the system of worship that God had given his people. Jesus goes in. He's mad as can be. He scatters people around. And we have every reason to believe the religious elites are angry with Jesus. He, he is an affront to all that is important to them, all the power that they have gathered, all the prestige that they have gathered. And John 3 tells us that a man called Nicodemus comes and meets Jesus. We read that he's a Pharisee, which means he's a religious elite. He's a real professional. We read Jesus refer to him as the teacher, which means he's probably one of the Sanhedrin, one of the 70 elite religious rulers that decided how in the world we're going to interpret God's law so that the kingdom of heaven might be experienced more tangibly here on earth. He, he, is, he is the man with status in Jerusalem. And despite the fact that a lot of the religious elites are angry at him after Jesus cleanses the temple, here comes Nicodemus. What does it look like for someone with a religious background 
with all the pedigree, who knows all the verses, someone who's got their act together, who understands the God of Israel, who's thought hard about what heaven uh, looks like when it, it is brought to earth and God's ways are brought to bear on this world. What does it look like for someone like that to have an encounter with the living God? What does it look like when this person has a run-in with Jesus? Well, what I want you to see is the way his character is transformed. And let me give you an outline. In case I get boring, you can try to entertain me by uh, following along an outline and stirring up when you hear that final third point. Uh, <laughs> I think in this passage, there's actually uh, what John is doing as he relays the story to us. is He's showing us that Jesus is taking uh, this man, Nicodemus, from a position of confidence, and he's bringing him to a position of confusion. But he's not leaving him there. He's taking him then from confusion, and he's putting him into a position of dependency, and finally, he's going to take him in that de- position of dependency and assure him of God's great, great love for him. So this is kind of how I want to outline it. This movement from confidence, or sorry, from confidence to confusion, from confusion to dependence, and from dependence to this deep assurance of God's love. So let's first think about the ways in which Jesus is moving Nicodemus from confidence to confusion. We really see that in the first eight verses of this passage. Now, there's a subtle tension uh, that exists in this passage that if you just read it in isolation, you missed out on. But like I said, Jesus just cleanses the temple. And so when John tells us that Nicodemus comes in the dark, I think we have every reason to to realize that there's something going on with Nicodemus' character. There's something slightly off with, with the way in which he's approaching Jesus. So he comes in the dark, but how does he address Jesus? He has all these confident titles, you know, rabbi. Teacher from God. You know, I know that God is with you. What's Nicodemus doing? He's saying, peer to peer. Brother, fellow rabbi. I've looked at the data. I've heard about you. I know what you're doing. And what I want you to know is that I know. (laughs) This is how Nicodemus starts in this passage. I want you to know that I understand. He's confident. He gets it. He has Jesus figured out, and he wants Jesus to know that. But how does Jesus treat him? Look at verse 3. He says to Jesus says to Nicodemus essentially this. You are clueless. You are clueless. You think you understand who I am? You think you understand how I operate? Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Verse 3. Now, I'm guessing that if you have any experience with Christianity or you lived in North America for any period of time, you've heard this language of born again and you've heard even of being a born again Christian. But Nicodemus had never been to a Billy Graham revival and he had never heard uh, this this figure of speech uh, born again in in the way that Jesus is presenting it to him. And this this certainly would have brought him to confusion. Maybe I could illustrate it this way. I have a congregant uh, in Toronto who is a member of the Swedish National Ballet Company. And he is a fabulous, fabulous uh, ballet dancer who spends quite a bit of time in Toronto with the Swedish National Ballet Company. And uh, f- for so many months, he had been inviting me to go see his performance. And, um, I mean, this pulpit's hiding me nicely, but I don't know if you could have guessed it, but I'm not necessarily a ballet type. Um, I, it's not something that I've spent my, my free time in, and it's, I've actually not even seen a lot of ballets. But he continually invited me, and I thought, oh, my goodness, how am I going to pretend like I appreciate You know, this guy's an incredible talent when I know nothing about it. And eventually uh, I gave in and I finally joined him at uh, one of his, the the Swedish National Ballet Company's presentations. And I must admit, 
Um, it took a couple minutes to get used to the men in the costumes. That was something that I had not been exposed to. Um, but as they were dancing, at some point, I just became utterly mesmerized by what was going on. I don't know if there's any ballet fans here. Uh, but I, I had this experience of saying, oh my goodness, their movements are so smooth and so fluid. Uh, there's a, there's a, such a gracefulness to what is happening. And I actually, I was utterly captivated by what was going on uh, that was being presented in front of me. And if you knew me, you would know exactly what's going to happen to me after this. That immediately my brain starts thinking, well, maybe I should have been a ballet dancer. <laughs> Mark said I'm from St. Louis. I'm actually from kind of a lower middle class suburb outside of St. Louis. We didn't have men doing ballet. I knew nothing of this. My dad was a construction worker. He might have beat me if he found out I was interested in ballet. I might have missed my calling. This is spectacular. And let's just assume for the sake of argument that I decide I want to pack it in. Not only do I want to be a ballet dancer, I want to dance like my friend Levy. I want to join the Swedish National Ballet Company. I want to woo and wow audiences and mesmerize them with these kind of moves. And let's just say for a hypothetical that I practice and I practice and I get a trainer and my plies and demi-plies become incredible. I can hold fourth position beautifully. My passes and pirouettes begin to look stunning. I know it's hard for you to imagine, but just for the sake of illustration, think about it. And let's even assume by some miracle of God, I become comfortable wearing one of those costumes in public. And I get to the place where I can finally try out to become a member of the Swedish National Ballet Company. Do you think that even with all of my training, all of my practice, all of my incredible efforts in such a short time, do you think I could pull off becoming a member of the Swedish National Ballet Company? The answer is no. No, of course not. And it's not because my knees crack whenever I squat. It's not because I don't look good in that costume. <laughs> it's because I'm not Swedish. You might not know that about me. But this is the biggest reason that I could never become a member of the Swedish National Ballet Company. I don't have Swedish blood. I've got the wrong nationality. I was born in the wrong place. If I want to be a member of the Swedish National Ballet Company, I have to be born again. I'd have to crawl into my mother's womb and fly her over to Sweden and then be born anew, born again in Sweden so that then I could have the right blood. Then I could have the right heritage. And then, with all of my work, somehow I could be a member of the Swedish National Ballet Company. If any of you are in immigration law, you're saying it's not that complicated. I can make you a Swede way faster than that. You're missing the point. <laughs> what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus is this. It's not just difficult to get into the kingdom of heaven. It's not just hard. It's not just that it requires a lot of practice. It's impossible to even lay eyes on the kingdom of heaven unless you are born anew. And Jesus is taking one of these religious elites, the person who grew up in church, the person who knew the Bible like the back of his hand, and he's saying, it is impossible for you to see the kingdom of God in your current state. It's not about potential. It's not about practice. You've got to have different blood. You have the blood of flesh, the blood of Adam. You were born to a rebellious people. You must be born again. You must be born from above. In the same way, when you're in utter darkness and your children have a bad dream and they run into your room and they hit the lights and the light totally becomes a disorienting experience. So also Jesus is disorienting Nicodemus. He's confusing him and he's got him right where he wants him. Light first feels disorienting and confusing when you're quite confident in where you're at. And Nicodemus starts to get it. He starts to get it. 
He starts to ask a question back to Jesus. But you can even kind of sense in the question something's going on. Because Nicodemus, uh, who desperately wants to see the kingdom of God, who thinks he is bringing in the kingdom of God, uh, starts to ask some kind of questions like, uh, Jesus, how can this be? You know, do I need to crawl back in my mother's birth canal? <laughs> you know, that's not going to happen. How can this be? How, Jesus, can I see the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus just remakes the point. You can see that in verse 5. You must be born of water and spirit. Nicodemus is confused. He wants to see the kingdom of God. He thinks all of his efforts are bringing in the kingdom of God. And Jesus is saying that your paradigm is totally wrong. And Nicodemus becomes undone. All of a sudden, Nicodemus realizes he has no insight No special access to knowledge of God. He's moving from a position of mastery over who God is and what his kingdom is like to a position of confusion. And let me just say briefly to make a quick application. My goodness, those of us especially who grew up in church, those of us who know our Bibles well, we love to tell God what he's supposed to be like, what his kingdom is supposed to feel like, how life is supposed to go. And Jesus will frequently have none of it. He will move us from a position of mastery confusion as fast as he can. God, why did you let me get fired that way? God, why are my kids not believers? I was as faithful a parent as I could be. Why are my finances in this position over and over and over again? God has to remind us that we don't fit into, uh, he doesn't fit into our agendas. We have to fit into his. And when he catches us telling him his marching orders, he says it's not going to happen. And he moves us from this position of mastery to confusion. This is part of the Christian experience, I think. And I think that's part of why John has left us this story. So maybe God's confronting you right now in some of your confidence. Maybe life's spinning out of control. Don't assume that Jesus isn't there. But Jesus doesn't just want Nicodemus to just be a confused person wandering around trying to pretend like he understands reality. He wants to move him. And how does he move him? Well, he moves him to a position of dependency. Look at verse 9. In in verse 9, and I'm going to just sort of, there's a lot of verses here, so I trust you could read these at home and think about it again. But you really see Jesus moving Nicodemus from confusion to dependency. He's moving Nicodemus from what he thinks he knows to making sure he knows that he doesn't know. And we get we get the point because Nicodemus responds to Jesus with a simple question in verse 9 that shows that he's dependent. He says, how in the world could this be? How could this be? He doesn't get it. His smug confidence is gone. And what does Jesus do after verse 9, verses 10 and on? He keeps Nicodemus there. He doesn't bail him out. He doesn't give him a quick answer. He says, oh, you're the teacher of Israel? Oh, you're the big shot around town and you don't even understand these things? He says, I'm talking about the wind. How are you going to understand complicated things when I start talking about the Spirit of God? Jesus wants Nicodemus to know He and his knowledge of God are completely at the mercy of Jesus. And my goodness, this is a paradigm we see all over the Bible. I'd love to spend so many hours thinking through this with you. But all the time in the Bible, what do we see characters do? The most spiritual, the most godly characters, what happens to them? They grow through a season of their life where they move from confidence to confusion, but confusion to dependence. Think about the Gospels all over the place. What are the crowds constantly asking? Who is this guy? Think of Martha. Where were you? Why didn't you show up? You could have saved my brother. Think of the disciples. One story. Where, where are we going to get food? It's a huge crowd. But really think of the whole Bible. Think of the big figures of the Bible, the heroes of the faith. Abraham. How am I going to have a, how am I going to have a child? My wife is so old. 
Moses. How are we going to take on the largest army of the world, the largest superpower with a bunch of ex-slaves? David, how long will you hide your face from me, O Lord? Jeremiah, will you forget your people, O Lord? Think of Paul. My goodness, what a paradigm of, of confidence to confusion, confusion to dependency. He has to be blinded. He has to wander around being led by others. Part of what Jesus came to this earth to do is he came to unsettle some of your paradigms, some of my paradigms, some of Nicodemus' paradigms, because he wants us to understand that we are dependent on him for everything. And what Jesus is calling Nicodemus to do, and what I hope you hear him calling you to do today, is to, to enter into this life of faith. You must be born again. You must start over like a little child. You must remember this terrifying experience of being a baby. Babies are incredibly vulnerable. Left defenseless, they'll perish. Left on their own, they will not survive. And Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, and he's saying to me, and he's saying to you, that this is what it's like in the life of faith, is you realize that you are in a position of constant dependence on Jesus. My goodness, this church plant, part of why it has worn me down, part of why I told you this introduction of what would it look like for my neighbors to have a saving encounter with Jesus Christ, is I've done, in some ways, everything I think I know how to do to gather people. To get them to come to parties, to get them to come to events of this church, to get them to even, say, read Mark's gospel with, with a small group of people. And yet, some have, few have come to saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. You know what's caused me to do? It's caused me to realize uh, what I don't know. It's helped me to realize that I am completely, as a pastor, dependent on Jesus Christ for new life to be poured into people, for people to understand the story of Jesus. This is completely I am completely at the mercy of our Lord who's in control of this world. I do not have mastery over how to maneuver someone from a position of unbelief to belief other than to beg that this person might be born again. That's exactly what church planning has done to me. And I hope I hope you've had some of those experiences where you share the gospel maybe with a family member or friend. Or maybe you're here and you're still trying to figure out Christianity. Or you realize that you're at the mercy of the sovereign God who, who watches over this earth. Jesus isn't about giving us all the answers. And the Bible over and over again, an encounter with Jesus also puts, often puts you in a position where you have more questions than you started with. Now Jesus isn't about making a bunch of ignorant people. He, he's not some sort of uh, megalomaniac God that loves for every one of his creations to have this sort of dis dependency disorder on him. No. But he likes reducing us to questions. He likes seeing our smug confidence destroyed. He likes when we have to rethink the questions that we're asking and learn to trust in him. Let's look at this final movement that Jesus will take with Nicodemus, though, because he doesn't just move him from confidence to confusion and from confusion to dependence, but his whole goal is that Nicodemus might be absolutely assured of God's love for him. That's his goal. That's why he's doing this. After a subtle rebuke in verses 10 through 13, uh, Jesus tells, references this cryptic story, which you heard read earlier, of a snake being lifted up in the desert. You remember, if you listen closely to the verse, it's quite disturbing. God has, has sent his people to judge a nation. They destroy a people group, a, a, a whole city. And what do they immediately do afterwards? They start grumbling at God's provisions for them. And he sends snakes because he's mad. And the snakes bite the people and they die. But God makes a provision. What's that provision? 
though they deserve death, though they had a, a, a sentence of death on their lives, he gives an opportunity for a second lease on life, as it were. The provision is a, a bronze snake on a pole in the middle of the camp. And all who were bitten could look upon this snake and be saved from their death sentence. In a sense, they were born again when they looked at this bronze serpent. Jesus is saying this, is the only way to be saved is to turn to God's provision. Now my guess is, and the people of Israel at the time, when Moses says, here's the provision, if you look at this bronze serpent in the middle of camp, you'll be rescued of your snake bite. My guess, there's probably a couple of doctors in the congregation at the time sitting under Moses saying, oh, um, Moses, um, I know a thing or two about snake bite poison, uh, bronze serpent idea, not a good plan. It's not going to rescue anybody. I'm sure it sounded foolish. I'm sure it sounded insane. But to everyone who looked at the bronze serpent, they became the biggest champion. This is where life was found. This is how you could be born again. Look at God's provision. And Jesus is pointing Nicodemus forward to a day when Jesus will be lifted up, first on a cross, suspended between heaven and earth, then when he's lifted up into the heavens to rule over heaven, over the heavens, and to, to dole out life unending to all creatures who will turn to him. And Jesus, Jesus' point to Nicodemus is this, that you must look to God's provision. But in God's provision, you can see God's deep, deep love for his creatures. He drives this point home in verses 16 through 21. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Nicodemus, here's the deal. You have to depend on me. You have to depend on me. But I am God's love put into flesh right in front of you. I am a message of God's love embodied for you. You cannot know God. You cannot understand the kingdom of heaven until you see what I am for you. I have a congregant who had been married for three months and in an ultimate Frisbee accident, as he jumped up for a Frisbee and someone hit his feet out from under him, he broke his neck, paralyzed from the shoulders down. No hope for recovery, need of constant care. Normal tasks like going to the bathroom became incredibly difficult, even impossible. I spent hours with him. Hours, as he told me, he was contemplating ways to commit suicide that could end this misery. But you know what he learned during this season of his life, this incredible trial? He learned how important that day was three months earlier when his wife took vows. Because it was in his position of total need that he found his wife to be more true to her vow to love him than he ever could have dreamed. His total need was met with a relentless total love that he couldn't have even asked for. He was ashamed of. His worst condition of dependency was matched with a faithful love that was beyond what he could have dreamed of. And this really moved him past this, the situation of contemplating suicide. Look, the mystery of God's love is this, that it's most understood, it's most comprehended, it's most internalized when we realize how badly we need it in that position of dependence. It's then... It's then and only then that we understand what it looks like for God to love us. Because he doesn't love us because we have something to offer him. He loves us when we were most unlovable, when we were at our ugliest, when we were rejecting him, spitting him, spitting at him, hating him, constantly moving away from his acts of kindness. God 
loves us. God sent his son to this world, a world full of sheer rebellion against him, a world full of outright anarchy and defiance towards him. He sent this world, his son, so that they might know his great love for him. Your father in heaven deeply loves you. And this is why he sent Jesus. He deeply loves you. And it's only when you realize your total need that you'll totally drink deep of his love. That you'll know what it means to totally be dependent on his love. Look, this is the provision. It was the provision for God's people in times of old. It's the provision now. Look upon the Son and be saved. Look upon the Son and be saved. He loved you enough to send his only Son. There's no way you can earn this love. There's a death sentence on your life. Look upon this Son and be saved. Will you look on this Son in faith? and receive his love. Let me pray. Our Father, we definitely uh, know ourselves to be a people who um, grow far too confident or far too assured of our own abilities. I don't know my sisters and brothers here, but my guess is their sins are similar to mine. That we can go long stretches of time without meditating upon and contemplating what it means to be people who obey you. That we can live our whole lives uh, blinded to the fact that we're creatures, that life is a gift from you and that we're indebted to you. We we could do that as easy as it it almost comes natural. But we come before you now as, as humbled sinners saying, Father, Father, in your kindness, help us to know that deep love. That deep, deep love, even if it means you have to put us in positions of dependence, we're willing to receive that. And Father, if there's anyone here who's never looked upon the Son, who's never laid hold of Christ, who said, this, my loyalty is towards this risen Christ, I will follow him. We pray that even now, as they ask, what might it look like to be saved? What might it look like to be rescued from this predicament? That you would, by your Spirit's kindness, pour out life into people, that they might know life unending even today. For those of us who have been in church for some season of time, protect us from our arrogance. Knock us down into positions of confusion that we might know our dependency and know of your great and marvelous love towards us. This we ask in Christ's name. Amen.